the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and we are at episode 516. And today I've got something different for you. We are going to go into the corporate world, and I'm interviewing Michael McCain. I'll tell you more about him. But if you're interested in what it's like to recruit top talent, what to look for, the problem with short-term leadership thinking, and creating a fantastic culture in a $4 billion company, well, you came to the right place. I'm really glad you joined us. Uh, Today's episode is brought to you by Belay. You can get $300 off the virtual assistant startup cost when you talk to Belay by August 31st. So hurry, just text Carrie to 55123 to get started. And by Generis, you can access helpful resources and schedule your free coaching call with a generosity expert by going to Generis, G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash Carrie. So I was really thrilled to sit down with the CEO and executive chair of the board of Maple Leaf Foods, which is Canada's largest food company, introduced to me by Karen Gordon, a previous guest on this podcast. And uh, a lot of you, Michael McCain will be new to you. If you live in Canada, as some of you do, you will know the McCain name. Uh, Two of the most iconic companies in Canada, McCain Foods, and then, yes, he's one of those McCains, and Maple Leaf Foods, where he's been for 27 years. It's funny, we were talking before we started recording. He and I started a leadership in our, our organizations uh, about 30 days apart from each other in 1995. I started May 1st, he started April in uh, at Maple Leaf Foods. But anyway, let me give you a bit of background. And I wanted to have this conversation because I love picking the brain of CEOs who run large corporations. So Michael is the executive chair and chief executive officer of Maple Leaf Foods with sales of $4.5 billion. That's billion with a B. He employs, or Maple Leaf Foods employs, approximately 13,500 people in Canada and the U.S. He has devoted his career to the food industry, starting at McCain Foods in the late 70s. He held a variety of roles, including president and CEO of McCain Foods USA. He joined Maple Leaf Foods in 1995. And since then, he has been instrumental, and we talk about this, in establishing Maple Leaf as a strong and sustainable values-based company with leading brands in so many segments of the food industry and a bold vision for the future. His team is completely devoted to becoming the global leader in sustainable proteins, reflected in ambitious goals in the advancement of nutrition, reducing antibiotic use in livestock, animal welfare and care, environmental sustainability, and enhancing food security nationally and globally. He's director of McCain Capital and Maple Leaf Foods. He's a member of the Richard Ivey, a very prestigious school of business in Canada, the Business Advisory Board. He's a member of the Business Council of Canada and the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He's also the honorary chair for the Maple Leaf Center for Food Security. So you're in for a treat. It's going to be a great conversation. Just a quick note, uh, there's a little bit of language in this conversation. So uh, just be aware. Um, But I love talking to a diversity of leaders. So sometimes, you know, as a leader, you think there's no way that somebody could do the job as well as you can. It's easy to feel like you've got to have your hands in everything for your organization to succeed. But the truth is, nobody accomplishes anything great alone. You have to delegate. 
And if you feel like you're overwhelmed trying to do it all, our friends at Belay can help. In fact, I know firsthand because I've hired several VAs through them, virtual assistants. Belay's modern staffing solutions have been helping busy leaders delegate the details for over a decade. With Belay, you can get paired with a U.S.-based contractor providing virtual assistant, accounting, social media, and website services to level up your organization through the power of delegation. Maybe you're thinking you can't afford it, but if you're a leader trying to do it all, this is one of the best investments you can make. So we have an exclusive offer for you. Belay is offering our listeners $300 off the virtual assistant startup cost when you talk to them by August 31st, 2022. So if you want to take advantage of that offer, $300 off, simply text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 to get started. That's Carrie to 55123. And I sat down with Jim Shepard, the principal at Generis, and talked to him about gratitude. And I asked him this, why is the church so bad at saying thank you? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, the church is terrible at saying thank you. It's uh, of all the nonprofits that are out there, the church is the worst. And you know, I don't know all the reasons, Carrie, and I don't want to rank these in any particular order, but I think one of the things I hear is it's just not expected. You know, that, you know, I'm giving my, my giving is to God. My giving is a spiritual relationship between me and God, and I don't need to be thanked. You know, for every hundred people in your church, there may be five people that truly believe that. So the overwhelming majority of them actually want to be thanked. They deeply appreciate it. Um, it sends a measure of respect for what you've done. We recognized it. We saw it. We deeply appreciate it. Um, I think they aren't aware of how important it is, too. I think that's that's out there. And, you know, one of the things that I'm stunned by, Kerry, is how many of them don't recognize that it's really just a best practice among nonprofits. I mean, it's it, mm. it really is. It's kind of a permission to play in every nonprofit, not, play, not, not call the church. They fall all over themselves when they get a new giver. And yet the church doesn't do that. And yet the ones who've done it, they've seen the, the effect of it. You know, we said it in our, in our gratitude ebook. Uh, gratitude is to giving like fertilizer is to a plant. It grows it like crazy. So if you want to get better at saying thank you, check out some of the resources that Jim Shepard and the team at Generis have created. You can access them all at generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry. With this turbulent economy, you're probably going to want to get better at generosity soon. And also while you're there, you can schedule a free coaching call with a generosity expert. It's all at generis.com slash carry. Year-end giving is just around the corner. No better time to start weaving gratitude in your culture today. So go to generis.com slash carry. So with all that said, let's dive into a wide-ranging conversation with Michael McCain. Michael, welcome to the podcast. It's a joy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a mutual friend who introduced us and a fascinating story. Every leader listening to this has led through some massive crises over the last couple of years, but the first time you really came onto my radar screen was about mm, 14, 15 years ago during the Listeria outbreak that happened at the company where you were CEO, uh, Maple Leaf Foods. And I just thought the way you handled that was exceptional. Can you talk about the Listeria crisis, the outbreak that happened at Maple Leaf Foods and what happened and what your response was? Speak about it briefly and at a high level, Kerry. Uh, let me let me start with first of all, uh, just to thank you for the opportunity to be with you today because it's uh, you know you have a 
you have an incredible uh, journey of exploring leadership from a lot of individuals. And uh, I really appreciate the topic and the role that you play in it. So thank you for having well, thank me. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I, I, let me start with, I don't love talking about that because it was a very dark period in our history and, uh, you know, it was a tragedy and 23 people, uh, died on our watch, uh, in the middle of that tragedy. And, um, you know, we just, uh, we, we've, uh, we've tried to honor it in specific ways and we continue to do so. Not the least of which is we had our annual, uh, commemoration today, actually, um, uh, in our team because we've, uh, we've committed that we'll never forget, but we don't like talking about it in kind of positive, uh, terms. If you, if you know what I mean, sure. you know, we did have a food safety breach, uh, notwithstanding our commitments to food safety at the time. And, but we had a breach for which we accepted accountability. You know, I'm grateful for the fact that, uh, we were able to navigate through that, uh, basically demonstrating uh, three things that were important to us at the time and I think important to the outcome. The first was a sense of uh, action orientation with a high sense of urgency. Uh, it wasn't just about talking about the problem. We had to, we had to deal with it uh, with re you know, real extreme pace uh, uh, throughout the organization. The second was uh, uh, accountability and recognizing that we own the problem, whether or not whether or not we felt we were responsible or not, or what the circumstances were, or the extenuating circumstances. Accountability is accountability, and sometimes it's for things even that you don't feel. You know, uh, the extenuating circumstance were just you're still accountable, and uh, our consumers trusted us. They didn't trust all uh, the uh, the things that we might have or could have uh, potentially pointed the finger to and we just said we own it and we're gonna we're gonna you know assume that ownership in the fullest sense and the final dimension was uh, was transparency in that uh you know which is part of our culture our dna and uh, uh the things that we were doing and the accountability that we were accepting we had to be transparent with all of the stakeholders and uh in in addressing it. So those are the, those are probably the headlines, uh, in terms of, um, that era for us. And, uh, we continue to remember the uh, families and individuals that uh, lost their lives and the profound impact that it had on our organization, uh, the ways that we committed to bring meaning to that uh, tragedy for, for us and for others. And, and uh, the the role that it plays on our journey in food safety around the uh, in the company since then. So it's a it, it was a, certainly a pivotal moment in our history. Well, and I appreciate you being willing to talk about it even at this level because I can't imagine how painful it was. Um, but you know, food manufacturers, there's E. coli outbreaks on a semi-regular basis. And what was what makes me remember this 14 years after it happened was the quality of your response. Normally, there's a little bit of denial, there's silence, there's blame shifting. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it made national news in, in Canada, my country, our country, where you just stepped forward, you owned it, you accepted full responsibility. There was genuine yeah. grief. There was accountability uh, there was a direct and heartfelt apology, and that's just so yeah. so rare in leadership, Michael. I just 
I, I, I remember at the time going, I don't think I've ever seen this before. I mean, we're used to politicians blame shifting and dancing around issues and CEOs trying to avoid lawsuits. And we'll link to it in the show notes. But, um, you know, that apology was was just, to my mind, an example of outstanding leadership. Yeah, well, well, again, there's no, you know, we don't accept any badges or accolades for a tragedy. It was just a tragedy at the end of the day. And I appreciate your kind words. There were a lot of, uh, there were, there were a lot of, people that I uh, represented at the time in the Maple Leaf organization that, you know, stood for the food that they, that we made and were very proud of what we did. And, you know, it was very important to, uh, very important to all of us to, um, you know, mistakes were made and, uh, and make sure the, notwithstanding the mistakes were made to handle them in an appropriate way. Give uh, leaders listening who may not know Maple Leaf Foods. I mean, even Canadians probably have no idea of of the scope of your operation. But what are the kinds of things you represent these days? Your products, the things that you sell, the things that you bring to market. Give us an idea of the scope yeah. of the operations that you're responsible for, Michael. Thank you for pointing out Maple Leaf Foods. Uh, it's certainly uh, a big part of my life. Uh, we are the largest food processing company in Canada and this in the Canadian footprint. Um, we are the largest um, protein company, mostly animal proteins, meat protein, but also plant-based proteins. We have a portfolio of brands, uh, uh, leading brands, number one, number two brands in almost every category that we operate in. In the meat case, uh, we have leadership brands in the, uh, the plant-based uh, segment. Uh, we're a leading processor of poultry and pork in the country. We have close to 30 manufacturing facilities throughout North America and 13,500 people, uh, with a, with a turnover, top line turnover of about $4.8 billion. Yeah, that's a very large company, particularly for the Canadian market. Um, yeah, you've, you've led through crisis. We sort of started on that point. And crises come in different forms. I mean, I want to talk to you about industry disruption and how things have changed. You've been at uh, Maple Leaf Foods now for 27 years. I mean, nobody really had a term of plant-based protein 27 no. years ago. Uh, you probably had other personnel crises. And of course, you've had the last two years to lead through, including mm-hmm. supply chain disruptions. You also speak semi-regularly to business schools about crisis leadership. What are some principles to effectively leading through a crisis? I think they're very, uh, the, uh, you know, crises is not, uh, is not the, um, you know, the mainstay of what we try and live and breathe in leadership at uh, Maple Leaf or should it be in any other organizations? It's the leadership, uh, it's, the lead, it's the arrow in your leadership quiver that you don't want to be drawing on very often, obviously. For sure. I think uh, the answer to your question is highly situational. Um, there, uh, in every situation that that I've touched, either personally or talked to colleagues or friends that uh, that have been have faced difficult circumstances, you know, each of their situations are 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 unique, and so it's uh, a little bit uh, difficult to say. Well, here's the blueprint. I don't think there is one really, but there are some, there are probably some common themes. I think in a situational, in a situational, uh, crisis setting, uh, clearly it's defined by leading with your, you know, your core values first. 
I think is, uh, is super important. I mean, when we've faced uh, challenging circumstances like that, we've had to be uh, urgent and decisive. And, you know, the only way you can be really urgent and decisive is kind of leaning on your core values uh, first. And uh, the things I spoke about earlier, uh, an action orientation or a transparency or a sense of accountability, that's, those are central to the Maple Leaf culture and values and our leadership values. And so we just leaned on in, in a situation where we're having to make decision in minutes, you know, key mm. transformative decisions in minutes, you, you have to lean on, you know, what you believe in as a, oftentimes more than what you know. So, you know, I think that's, uh, that's maybe a common denominator. Uh, certainly in the middle of these settings, we've always, uh, you know, when we faced uh, challenging circumstances, we've, we try and focus on the big things first. Uh, you don't have time or energy for all of the the uh, distractions, and so you just kind of focus on the uh, the important uh, and urgent, as opposed to uh, smaller smaller matters. But as I think the key point being carried is that we've we've tried to approach it very situationally, and every situation has some uniqueness to it. Yeah. And I think leading with your values is a really interesting place to start on that because you're right. They're the things that, that guide you. And I want to get mm -hmm. into your values later in the interview because I was surprised when I was doing preparation and research for this conversation, just how values driven you are. But I want to go back a little bit. So leadership style is something mm -hmm. that's formed slowly over a lifetime. Who were your mentors and what did they teach you in the early days of your career when you were an aspiring leader, a young leader? I think, uh, you know, I think every leader in a for-profit or non-for-profit politics or, or uh, private sectors will, you know, must form their own journey uh, and their own blueprint for leadership. And I've, you know, I've tried to do that as well. But of course you do, through your own journey, draw on strands of DNA from a lot of different people. And, uh, that's what I've, you know, when I look back, I'm 63 years old now and I've been, uh, in the same job for over 25 years. So you, you know, you get to be a little bit reflective about, you know, how that, uh, how that journey unfolded, uh, over the last 25 years and maybe the, the 15 prior to that. But, um, uh, you know, there, and I think back of all the strands of DNA, uh, on my journey that I've adopted from different individuals who you would classify as mentors. Certainly I'd put my father who was one of the founders of McCain foods. Uh, and he was, he and his brother uh, at the age of uh, 26 and 28 founded a, a frozen French fry business uh, in Eastern Canada that is now the largest of its kind in the world. And, um, you know, in their late twenties and uh, he was, an, he was a remarkable man. And, uh, you know, obviously he was a mentor, but but he wasn't the only one. I have a lot of differences in in, uh, in how I've approached uh, leadership than from my father, and you know we were very uh, we were very open about our differences. Uh, not critical, just uh, not, not critical differences. I'm just a different approaches to leadership. Other people like um, you know I had a very close relationship with a, I think one of the finest human beings I've ever met in the Canadian private sector, a man by the name of Purdy Crawford. Uh, who was uh, a remarkable individual, real, uh, just a, uh, uh, the quality of, of character that is 
not replicatable often. And uh, he was on our board and he was a great mentor. I think of people like my, uh, my best friend in the world who uh, worked uh, technically for me, but I would describe it with me as he was the chief operating officer for Maple Leaf Foods. And we worked together at McCain Foods prior. Uh, Rich, uh, Rich Land is a, you know, he's a, he's a, just a, r- a remarkable leader in so many different ways. And I learned uh, so many things from him. And so you just pick and choose different pieces of DNA from different individuals and you, you pull them into your own cocktail and, uh, of, of leadership and, and, uh, your leadership belief system, you know, you, it executes, uh, you execute it from there. So. I think that's uh, that's that's kind of how it's all assembled for me. Uh, maybe others have different story, but that's that's worked for me. So this may be something you don't want to talk about, and if not, we'll just pass and move on to the next question. But you mentioned your father, and again, yeah. highly successful company. If you're you're not from Canada, you have a hard time understanding how big McCain Foods and Maple Leaf Foods really are. But we do have a lot. I know a lot of leaders who listen to this podcast work with a parent or with a relative. And you mentioned that you had, you know, a different approach or perhaps even different values than your dad. How did you navigate that? And then what would be an example of some of the divergence of approach if you're, if you're comfortable talking about that? Because I think that's a sticky point for a lot of leaders, Michael. Yeah, no, I'm totally comfortable talking about it. You know, again, my father, my father, he started out as obviously as a parent. But it evolved from parent into into boss and mentor. Uh, as we moved over, migrated to the Maple Leaf organization, and he was a he was a non executive chair, and I was the CEO. It evolved to a place of uh, you know intimacy in friendship and uh, um, advisor uh, as an advise in an advisory capacity. And uh, when he when he passed uh, ten years ago. He, he, you know, he was uh, certainly my closest friend in the world. And uh, uh, so that, you know, that evolution is unique. Uh, I think it's, uh, it was, I think one of the greatest gifts in my life is to be able to have that kind of relationship with my father uh, through his lifetime. And um, we, we, you know, clearly we were different. I mean, he, 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 and I don't mean different in a, in a negative way. I think just, the the shape of an organization in his era was different than it was in mine. You know, he grew up, he, he started his business in the 50s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know. And in that era, Carrie, leadership was about, you know, really heavy, a really heavy load on the command and control. I mean, it was very hierarchical, yeah. like, he's, he's the boss. And, <laughs> uh, you're not. And, <laughs> yeah. and you're not. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's, that was the, that's, and it wasn't him as much as it was leadership in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Right. Uh, you know, that's not, that's not how people lead today. And we, you know, we've had, we have a talent strategy at Maple Leaf that is focused on finding the very best talent in the world. And, uh, and we seek to inspire them. We have a much greater sense of teams uh, and teamwork and collaboration in our approach to uh, leadership and management uh, in the Maple Leaf organization than he probably was accustomed to. Uh, you know, I would say to I would say to Dad things like, you know, he because he he when I was the CEO and he was the chair, he I I made a really you know we had a really clear understanding that uh, you know there could only be one 
person in charge. And so he was had a, he, he gave advice when I asked for it, but I didn't, you know, but not when I didn't. And it was, you know, it was important to, important to him and important to me. And, but I, you know, I did, I did ask for his advice every now and then, or I'd just go in and vent every now and then. I'd, I'd crash into his office and I'd say, I, I don't want to hear, a, I don't want to hear a word from you. I don't want to hear anything from you. I just want you to listen. All I want you to do is just listen because I need something to vent with. And, and he was very good at it actually. And, uh, but he would comment every now and then I'd go in, for example, just to illustrate your question about differences in style. As I'd, I remember the time when I walked in and I said, oh boy, we've got this major change initiative. And my, and he said, what's your biggest, what's your biggest challenge? I said, my biggest challenge is, is getting alignment. And, uh, he said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, getting alignment, getting everybody aligned. He said, well, that's easy. <laughs> Just look at everybody and say, get in line. <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, you know, look at it just doesn't work that way anymore. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way anymore. So, so, you know, there, it's just, I think it's more a generational thing than it was, uh, you know, differences, but, uh, yeah. but we had the kind of relationship. We could both joke about that and talk our way through it. So you are really big on culture and any read through an annual report or uh, research would show that that's really important. Um, where did your views on, on corporate culture kind of come from? And why do you think it's so important to develop a clear and distinct culture as a leader, Michael? Well, first of all, you know, it's important to, um, I think, to have a definition of both culture and values, uh, you know, at our fingertips. And I don't think, Carrie, that, uh, that necessarily two people would define it the same. Our, our view is that culture in, a, in, its, in its most basic form is best described as how people behave when nobody's looking. And... Um, you know, as the leader of an organization, actually, that's probably the single most important thing I care about is how people behave when I'm not looking or anybody else is looking. When they're on their own, which is the majority of their time, how are they going to behave? They make decisions, uh, you know, all day long. They use their time. They, they you know, they, uh, use, they use their resources uh, all day long. And how they behave when nobody's looking is really, really important to the success of the organization. Yeah. Uh, uh, in in the Maple Leaf context, I think there's a, there was a critical point of distinction because I in that I came I am a product of the McCain organization. I came out of McCain Foods. My my father and his brother never once in their entire leadership of that organization never once uttered the word culture. They mm -hmm. didn't talk about it. They never they never spoke about it. They never talked about leadership values. There were no posters on the wall. There was none of that. None of that. And yet they had a very, very, very clear uh, culture in the organization. Why? Because they uh, hired people consistent with their view of behavior, leadership behavior. They deselected people that didn't align with that uh, view of leadership behavior over time. Uh, and ultimately, their actions determined what that culture was meant to be. So they had great alignment across the organization. You contrast that when we acquired Maple Leaf Foods in 1995. It was a disparate group of, of businesses. Um, they were all run as in a somewhat siloed 
basis. And I and have after spending the first year trying to diagnose the uh, the, the the business and what the future would look like at Maple Leaf uh, in 1995, I remember the day saying to the board, uh, saying to my board that the I felt that the single biggest barrier to our ability to achieve long-term sustainable success in the organization was the absence of a common bond or culture or leadership values throughout the organization. There was no glue. And um, uh, because we were a collection of acquired assets and businesses, we couldn't just let it happen by osmosis. We had to right. we had to pivot it into in actively managing it because we were changing culture, not building something from its first brick the day that they put mm-hmm. they built their first factory in 19, 1956 in you know rural New Brunswick, right? Uh, so we were changing culture, so we had to be very explicit about how we managed culture, how we went about it, and what we found actually over decades over the last two decades is what started out as a clear need in the organization, it very quickly became recognized as probably our single most important asset as an organization. It was the reason people joined the company. It was the reason people uh, behaved the way they did. It was the reason people stayed at the company, right? And, uh, and loved, uh, loved, you know, working inside the, uh, inside this organization on this team and, and, and really came to define, you know, who we were. So, uh, the more, uh, relevant that became, the more we, you know, focused on managing it proactively and in that way. What are some examples of the culture that you created or are trying to create? What would be like an example of some of those values? We've gone through three iterations actually in 25 years. So they're not to be changed, but, and they're evolutionary, not revolutionary. So there was the first version uh, circa 1998, I think it was, uh, the second version in 2009 and just, uh, last year launched, uh, uh, the, uh, the next evolution of them. They migrated from six to eight of them, actually. Um, I don't know if, if you want an example or do you want all eight? I'd be happy to. to well, s- whatever them. we get, we got time. So, I mean, well, I mean, we start up, I'll, I'll be very brief. Um, it starts with our, each one is a special purpose in the organization or to, to how we behave when nobody's looking, if you will, and in the, in the culture of the organization. So they all have a very clear purpose. Uh, the first is uh, about character and integrity. Uh, it's doing what's right. Uh, the second is our ethos of shared value. So um, uh, leading through shared value. Uh, the third is the culture of performance, that we are a high-performance organization. Uh, that and that defines uh, you know how we behave in our in in our aspirations for performance. The fourth is uh, leading uh, inclusive and diverse teams. So it's our statement of team and collaboration. Uh, the fifth is uh, is uh, be, uh, being disciplined in our decision making. Uh, so uh, you know our our fact based, objective, disciplined decision making processes. The uh, sixth is accountability and recognizing that we're accountable individuals, oftentimes for things that we may not even be responsible for, but yet we're accountable for nonetheless. Number seven is uh, an intense curiosity, which is about continuous improvement, being better tomorrow than you were yesterday. So intensely curious. 
And then the last number eight is about how we communicate, which is transparency. And uh, so it's a communication one. So there's a statement of character, of teamwork, of uh, performance, of decision-making, of accountability, uh, continuous improvement, and communications. Yeah, th- those are those are great values. How much collaboration do you solicit in forming those? You know, you mentioned top-down leadership of the previous generation. Is that you and your senior leadership team? Um, how what is the process? Because I talk to a lot of leaders, and they're like, "Yeah, we need cultural values, but we're not sure how to how to get them, how to find them." So, what process did you use? That's very topical, and I'll say this with uh, with a caveat, and I'll come back to the caveat, but. Here's how they work. I wrote them. Every single word. Uh, I own the pen. I told the entire organization, my team and everybody else, I own the culture and the values of this organization. And the reason is because it's very clear. Culture is created not by the poster on the wall and the words we choose, but by how I personally behave and what I'm willing to champion and 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 how I'm and, and my actions are going to define the real culture, not the poster on the wall, but the real culture and values of the organization. And if there's anything that I want to own in this company, you know, that's it. We can talk a lot about strategy. We can we can agree on it. We can align over a period of time. And honestly, I'm a flexible strategist, and I'm happy to empower people to tactically run the business. But I personally own the culture and values of this company. Now, the caveat is, is with that said, I did have a consultative process and that consultative process included my senior leadership team and some others. And I made it really clear, I'm genuinely deeply interested in your view. And I'm going to consider, and I will honor your view with deep, fulsome consideration provided you're okay with me the okay with me playing caesar when it's all done thumbs up or thumbs down because i'm going to de- i have to decide whether i can personally embrace it or not and make it and do i think that it's going to that it's going to be part essential to the the future of this business that it's the kind of company that i want to both own and run and that i'm prepared to personally embrace it and champion it because if there's if there's any even the slightest amount of white space between the leader's behavior and the poster on the wall, the poster on the wall is going to lose. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, we had to make sure it was, we had to make sure it was credible in that sense. And I've, and I've been very clear and people are fine with that. They're totally fine with that. So let's talk about, um, and thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about high performance culture. What does that mean at Maple Leaf? What it means really, because I think, you know, we, we do have a, our, our, the aggregate of our culture is, is, is a performance orientation. I like to think of it as, you know, a collection of Olympic athletes and not house league players, uh, which by definition means that if you're an Olympic athlete, you're going to, there's a little bit of edge to it. Right. Uh, and we have edge. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you can't operate in a, in a, if you use the sports analogy, you can't operate at the Olympic level. Right. Uh, without some edge uh, mm-hmm. built into it. And so there's some edginess to it. But, you know, I think it's characterized by this visceral, this intense drive to achieve. And people who have, just by nature, they're not, they're not told that way, they're just by nature, they have an intense 
desire to achieve, to have impact, uh, and do it in a way that is, uh, you know, has a best in class outcome. And that, I think that's true with, you know, whether it's a financial outcome or a non-financial outcome, it could be a sports outcome. It could be a philanthropic outcome. It could be a societal outcome, a political outcome. It could be any kind of an outcome, but people who are, have that visceral best in class mindset, uh, on the outcome really is the, is the, the kind of the defining, uh, vignette of a performance individual. And, uh, and that's what we try and foster in our organization. How do you select for that? Because there's millions of people who could work for you. You obviously are very careful about who you recruit at the highest levels of the organization. Are there particular traits, mm. like obviously, you know, that Olympic athlete metaphor is really helpful, but how do you know who has it and who doesn't? Are there certain markers that you've seen over the years that help guide you somewhat reliably? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, Carrie. And, you know, the, the art and science of hiring is, uh, is, is, a, is a very ill-defined and, and yeah. poorly practiced art and science, I think. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I think people can make is to think that there's a visual or a characteristic connection to people that have that attribute. Yeah, I've seen people that are, have all different types of styles. Mm. and visual visual demonstrations of their leadership that may or may not be performance oriented right or or any other attribute of, of our culture right performance is one dimension of our culture you know being able to you know successfully lead teams is, is say another one and the same thing's true there is that you know those visual cues or those markers that you're that we're, we all seek I, I just don't think exist the 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 science of hiring that we try and deploy as much as we possibly can is rooted in the idea that you know experience is your best indicator so if you want to know that somebody's a really high performance individual talk to me about how you've demonstrated that in the past and if they can talk to you credibly about how they've demonstrated that in the past they'll probably demonstrate it in the future right so uh, we, we follow basically very granular experiential, uh, interviewing techniques. I, I really appreciate that. And that resonates. How do you navigate that? Let's say, and you know, you're probably not hiring a 21 year old senior executive, but you clearly have 21 year olds working in your company. A lot of people would say, well, that's easy to spot at 40. Either you did something with your life or you didn't, you've got a track record, are there indicators you would look for even in a teenager or a college student that would indicate that they bring that kind of experience, that kind of aptitude to the job? Like what are some of the markers you'd look for in a younger, just starting out potential hire? Sure. I mean, yeah, you know, look at, uh, look at people, look at it, look at somebody who just graduated from high school and how they lived their life through high school. Right. You know, there, are, I know young adults that did extraordinary. They, they were extraordinarily social, and they were extraordinarily studious and had great marks. And they were the captain of their um, the, uh, a particular sports team, you know. And they, well, how the hell did you manage all that? And well, you know, they did. So I, I think you, you can see these 
attributes very early on, right? And, and again, you can see it experientially just from how they live their life as individuals, as young adults. I, I talked to some amazing college students, amazing in terms of what they accomplished, what they've done and what they've accomplished in a very short period of time. Hmm. You also, one of the other values you mentioned was uh, shared value. Can you explain what that means and how that philosophy, why it's important? Yeah, well, that, you know, that, that's, that's a, uh, uh, in this, this center piece of Maple Leaf purposeful journey today, the idea of shared value creation, uh, distinct from ESG and distinct from shareholder value creation. And there's been a lot uh, written about the, 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 idea of shared value creation. So I'll try and summarize it, uh, uh, Kerry. Basically, it is a reflection of multi-stakeholderism, the recognition that an enterprise, the enterprise has uh, multiple stakeholders, uh, all with valid interests uh, in the success of the enterprise over a long period of time. And shareholders are one of those but they're not the only one. And it is a clear rejection of the idea of shareholder primacy, said differently, that we're not in it just to make money for the shareholders. We're, are, we, we do what we do to create value for all stakeholders, shareholders included. It's not ignoring shareholders, shareholders included, but rejecting the primacy of their interests over the others. And uh, that's, uh, you know, that is, uh, you know, that's a super important, um, foundation for, for us to, to build our strategies and direction setting and expectations and all, all aspects of the business. I think what some of the things that, um, uh, that create the, uh, a defining, a defining feature of shared value over particularly ESG initiatives and, and, can you define uh, ESG um, just quickly for those of yeah, us who don't know environmental, that? Environmental, social, and governance. It's the it's all the rage today, all the rage in uh, C-suites throughout North America. And uh, there is a lot of goodness in that, a lot of really, really good things in the ESG movement in North America, and just a little bit more bullshit. And, you know, you have to be very cautious of differentiating the goodness from the BS. But in our case, in our case, uh, and particularly in shared value, what's different about that is that we go, we, we do what we, we, what we can, what we have to, to uh, try and create the vision of our enterprise, which is about shared value to the financial success of the business so that we're not facing the existential trade-off of virtue versus money. And, and, we've, and we've tried to do that. So for, for instance, uh, our core vision at Maple Leaf is to be the most sustainable protein company on earth. That's our vision at Maple Leaf, to be the most sustainable protein company on earth. That sustainability is defined as the food we produce, uh, our climate uh, re relationship with the environment uh, and the climate, our animal welfare and stewardship, and uh, you know how we connect to the communities that we operate in. Uh, those are the those are the core stakeholders that we 
are, are focused on, in addition to our people, of course, uh, in addition, obviously, to our people. Uh, but that vision of being the most sustainable protein company on earth and creating value, long-term value, and we've defined what that is for each one of those stakeholders, is really important to us. And as part of our strategies, we bake that into every strategic initiative we have, everyone. It's what Maple Leaf people wake up in the morning thinking about is how to further that vision in their own particular domain. The outcome is good also for our shareholders because we've also connected that to the benefit to the, uh, we've also used that as the, uh, use that as the cornerstone of our marketing strategies. We market all of our brands as being the first carbon neutral brands in, uh, in the meat case in North America. We are the first carbon neutral food company in the world, in the world. First large scale carbon neutral food company in the world still are today. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the only, in fact, to the best of my knowledge, the only one today that is carbon neutral now, not 10 years from now, right now as you and I are having this conversation, carbon neutral. Well, we try and monetize that. We put it on our packaging, carbon zero, carbon zero food product, right? We sell, we, we are leaders in North America in sustainable meat. We are leaders in North America raising animals without antibiotics, right? Because it's really important part of, uh, uh, of uh, of the the future of the industry, we we market uh, you know our leadership in animal welfare. We we connect our brands to our work in uh, in food security, and so uh, I can demonstrate to the shareholders that yes, this is right for all those other stakeholders, but it's good for you too. So uh, so it's you know that's that's one of the differences between shared value and and uh, and and other you know, initiatives. No, I really that, appreciate that, that. Yeah, it really resonates. Uh, a little quick story for you. And then, because I think I read this in one of the documents that your team sent through on sustainability. And one of the problems with being a publicly traded company, Maple Leaf Foods is a publicly traded company, correct? Yes. Yeah. yes it is. So you've got shareholders you have to report to. I remember mm -hmm. being in line on uh, Toronto Pearson, getting on board an Air Canada flight and I never do this, but I struck up a conversation with a guy ahead of me. I don't know how we got it, but I found out he was the CFO of a massive, like multi-billion dollar retailer, and he was flying to New York. And um, that retailer, I don't want to name it, was in some trouble, you know, having the usual retails not doing particularly well in an online economy kind of thing. And I said, boy, that's a, that's a tough problem to get through. And he said to me, I mean, this is a five-minute conversation, so I don't know why he's giving me this information. He goes, oh, listen, Kerry, I know exactly what to do as a CFO. It's just I can't do it on 90-day timelines when I have to report to shareholders. He said, I know how to turn this company around. Just the market won't hear of it because it's long-term thinking, not short-term thinking. And I haven't forgotten that conversation. And you know, the company's still struggling a couple of years later. But I think a lot of leaders feel that pressure. They feel that pressure. I've got this elder board. I've got this governing board. I've got this, these stakeholders that want immediate results. When you realize the change you need to might make might take two years, five years. And I think you've done a really good job in diversifying that and saying, no, we're going to play the environmental game. No, we're going to pay attention to stewardship of the planet, stewardship of the animals. And that might not have an immediate result as in the next 90 days. How do we, you mm -hmm. know, maximize shareholder value in the next three months? 
But I think that's a really brilliant thing. Can you speak to how you learn to manage the short term versus the long term and yet satisfy shareholders over the long run? Because I think there's something really big there. Yeah, there, there, there is. There really is. I'll start with Kerry. Uh, you know, I, I come from the school of thought that uh, short termism is one of the most perverse and destructive dimensions of modern capitalism. You know, I personally think that uh, you know steps should be taken to try and change the change the horizon, the lens of horizon in many large-scale public companies. Yes, we are a public company, but I also, you know, important to note, and I have a bit of a, I have a bit of a gift slash luxury in the sense is that my family own 40% of it. So, you know, uh, that gives me an owner operator lens that by definition we can, we can, you know, I'm, uh, and I, in the spirit of full disclosure, we tell all of my shareholders that like, Honestly, from a lens perspective, and how do I look at the business? I'm, yeah. Do I care about the, do I care about the next quarter and the next year? Yeah, of course I do. You know, you want to win the Stanley Cup. You're going to, you need to win games along the way. You can't just be focused on the cup, right? You got to win some games along the way. Of course you do. But the decisions we make, the key decisions we make, I'm focused on generational transfer. All right. What's the stock value going to be in five? What's the share value going to be in five and 10 years? Right. Uh, not, uh, you know, not uh, next week and next quarter or the next, uh, you know, next, even next year. That requires a certain sense of responsibility, though. Be- and the reason, what, the most, res- the, the most uh, important uh, overlay to that in what we've experienced, and this is just what how, this is what we what we think in this is that we make long term decisions, but they're not economically irrational decisions. They're long term decisions, but they're economically rational. I can show you. I remember visiting Japanese trading houses that would talk about, you know, they talk about. You know, they'd be doing something that, you know, hopefully 50 years from now will, you know, be really be attractive 50 years from now. There wasn't oftentimes any sense of economic rationality to it, right? It was just under the cloak of a very lazy long-term lens. Long-termism doesn't mean, doesn't mean that it's not economically rational. It just says that the returns are demonstrative over a period of time. And modern finance has given us the ability to weigh that in the short term. How much yeah. is that worth today? And uh, so it becomes economically rational, even though it's long term. Sure. Right? So, you know, that's, that's largely, you know, how we try and find the balance. We, we are, you know, if you, we, while we make decisions long term, if you ask my management team what I'm like in a management meeting in our weekly management rhythms, you know, if we had a, you know, a week last week um, they'd say where's that long-term thing you know <laughs> yeah but you know because we're we you know it's just part of you know that that performance thing is that you know you, you 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 still want to you still want to be a performer every day of the week right and uh and that's part of again part of our culture but the decision the decisions we make 
create value over time. And I think that's, uh, you know, super important. So my wife and I were both born in the mid sixties and, uh, we sometimes joke cause we love food and we, we were buying organics back in the nineties, that kind of thing. But we probably grew up, I don't know whether you would agree with this, but the seventies had to be probably the worst nutritional decade in the history of humanity. Most of the food was plastic. The cheese was plastic. You know, we had milk in, in from powder, uh, there was so much processed food and so much canned food. There was spam. There was all that stuff. And then, you know, in the 90s, people started to get a little more health conscious. And obviously, the last decade has been, you know, a real transformation in that with the move to organics and sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. But what that's probably meant for you as a food services company is a lot of change over the years. And Maple Leaf Foods, again, I think is a leader in sustainability. Can you talk a little bit about that change management process? Because that is a tidal wave of change in food services. And what have been some of the opportunities and then some of the challenges of really transitioning how a whole industry operates? Yeah, that's, um, I've obviously at my age and stage spent a lot of time thinking about the, uh, you know, the episodic, shifts that have occurred in consumer behavior and uh, what's that meant for our industry over over a long period of time um you know if you narrow it down just to consumer behavior uh, uh yeah the the uh, uh, clearly in the 60s and 70s uh, nutrition you know nutrition um was not really on anybody's radar screen. <laughs> Nobody's. Yeah, it was going um, in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, it was going in the opposite direction. But then the response to that, interestingly, uh, you know, I was, I, I've been around long enough to know when the USDA launched its very first uh, pyramid, right? It's nutritional pyramid. And oh, at the base okay. of the pyramid, you know, which happened in the 80s, actually. And you, you go back and take, a, notwithstanding the fact that the 60s and 70s that you refer to, the, the worst thing that ever happened was when the USDA issued its first pyramid. And at the base of that pyramid was carb loading. It was basically eat a ton of bread, ton of bread, rice, pasta, tar, like just carb loading. And the carb, carb consumption went up through the roof for the next 20 years. And North mm -hmm. Americans got, you know, gained more and more and more weight. Mm -hmm. Right. It's true. And start starting in the, starting in the, because of carb loading, starting in the eighties. Right. So, uh, so there's, you know, there's been lots of different, uh, different, um, you know, kind of macro trends that have, that have uh, driven that. Uh, I think probably since the eighties, uh, which is, you know, I, I was, I was not a marketer in the sixties and seventies, so I wasn't around to respond to those trends, but sure. uh, you know, I, I was in the eighties and the nineties and the two thousands and the two thousands and tens. And I, I think there's probably been, you know, as the, as consumers approached nutrition, uh, starting in the eighties, it's gone through sort of, uh, three different waves of consumerism uh, that I've personally seen. The, the first would be, you know, in the, in the eighties, it was everything about what you take out of your food, right? Diet. It was diet, everything, right? Uh, there was yeah. like, it was yep. one, it was one diet. They were, we're taking out the fat. We're taking out the sugar. We're taking out this, right? And it was, everything was being taken out of their food to try and create 
the sense of, you know, uh, to, to more nutrition, basically, you know, health and nutrition was viewed as weight management, right? Mm-hmm. So it was diet foods with a, it, the, the next evolution coming into the nineties was not what you take out of your food, but what you put in your food. So added calcium, added this, added that, right? Do this for this, you know, functional foods and so on and so forth. So it was, it was a, you know, went through a decade of health and nutrition was not about what you take out, but what you add back to natural, to, to more natural foods. I, I think today uh, there's a greater sense of neither of those being the right nutritional answer. Today it's more about uh, you know, balanced consumption. People recognize that, you know, the human body was built for balance and nutrition is really about balance. You know, your grandmother probably had it right all along, which is a little bit of protein, uh, a little bit of starch and tons of fruits and vegetables. And she probably coached you on that. And she probably had it right all along. And, you know, there's no good foods and bad foods. It's just about good diets and bad diets. I would, I love a good chocolate every now and then. I love a good chocolate, but I can't eat a whole bunch of them. I can only have a little bit every now and then because it's, I know that that's good for my diet. Yada, 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 yada. Um, and the final change I think that's occurred in the last 10 years that's really meaningful is the evolution towards responsible consumption. And uh, where people are are saying it's it's actually my, my consuming dollars, consumer dollars, uh, are going to increasingly go towards products and companies that I feel are behaving responsibly and have some kind of a responsible place in our society. Uh, our, our, for example, our sustainable meat offering is growing at high double digits every year. We're one of the leaders in North America. And it's now close to, you know, it's uh, close to 20% of our portfolio now is in sustainable meat. And, you know, and consumers are buying it, willing to pay a little bit more because it costs a little bit more. Uh, but it's, but it's responsible. It might be, it's raised without antibiotics. It's animal care. It's, it's uh, animal care certified. It's carbon neutral. It's, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's, you know, we, and we take all of those and bundle it under the banner of responsible consumption. Got it. I was going to ask, how do you define sustainable meat? Um, just as those things, all, all antibiotic free. Yeah. All, all of the above. above. Great. Antibiotic. It's a suite of things. It's uh, antibiotic free. It's carbon neutral. It's, uh, it's uh, animal welfare certified. Uh, we're migrating to hundred percent sustainable packaging. We're not there yet, but we hope to be there by 2025. So there's a suite of, of benefits in our sustainability portfolio that we're adding to the uh, adding to the to uh, our sustainable meats platform. Well, and on that note, you gave a commencement address and have, have uh, produced uh, a document or or at least a concept that you call a new charter for capitalism. And that's a real debate right now. It's a big debate, it seems, between the left and the right. You know, capitalism is evil. Capitalism is fantastic. You have a different view. And I'd love for you to give us just a snapshot as we wrap up, Michael, of what your new charter for capitalism includes and what it might look like. You know, the the context is, you know, just some thinking that, uh, that, that, and I just felt the need to express it. Uh, the, the, some thinking the, uh, about the social construct of capitalism 
that uh, I think is clearly not working for everybody in the way that it needs to. And I decided to put pen to paper. I'm fully recognizing that these aren't necessarily the uh, the uh, final blueprint per se. I, I but I did so only to create some sense of dialogue around these topics, particularly focused on the need to come up with some kind of systemic change in capitalism to make it more inclusive. You know, here we know that capitalism around the world has delivered extraordinary outcomes since way back before the Industrial Revolution in, in so many areas for humanity. The problem is that we now realize that it's come with inexcusable consequences directly connected to that foundation in our life. So some great outcomes that we can all point to that we want to protect, but inexcusable consequences. And the trade-offs between those two, uh, I think, are, are too great. Uh, examples are uh, planet Earth's on fire. Examples are the strength of the environment is deteriorating. Examples are globalization uh, has delivered overall prosperity for for uh, society around the world, for populations around the world, but it's largely been in the context of a race to the bottom, mostly. Uh, there's been a, an intolerable rise in inequality and social justice uh, in the in around the world, uh, and we've faced endless human conflict, oftentimes protective of some capitalist oriented need. So those are the trade-offs that I think, uh, that I, I feel or I've felt are too great, notwithstanding the goodness, the good things that have occurred because of this thing that we hold so dear. I don't believe that throwing the baby out with the bathwater is the right answer. Um, I feel like, um, I feel like that we should look for a new charter that builds on what we have, doesn't throw out what we have. Uh, and I defined uh, four or five different, I think five, I'm going from memory, um, uh, Carrie, five different components of that. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether you want to get into them quickly or. They're... Yeah, we can, we can touch on them. Um, well, I'll, I'll, let me summarize. Uh, number one is the idea of recogni formally recognizing multi-stakeholders, multi-stakeholderism, right? Uh, equally. Like we, like talked, we about talked about Rejecting earlier. the primacy of shareholders. I think multi-stakeholders, the, the recognition of multi-stakeholderism is essential in a new version of capitalism, right? And there, it's astonishing how many people in the business community don't speak that language right? and they need to, right? It has to, we have to recover that. So that's essential. Number two is I do believe, as we talked about already, that short-termism is one of the modern curses of our society. And there are specific tools that the capitalist society should embrace that specifically disadvantages short-termism in favor of long-termism. There are things that can be done tools that could be applied that would accomplish that. 
And what, what would an example be of something that would discourage short-termism? I, well, you know, that you're, you'll, you'll scratch on, you'll scratch on specific solutions. And, and I think there are ideas out there. I, I don't want to pretend to believe that, that any of the ideas are mature enough that they could be executed overnight. But let me get, here's a little, for instance, what, it's just a, a micro example, not a macro example. There are countries in Europe today that say you can't vote as a shareholder until you've, until you've owned the stock. You get all the economic interest, but you can't vote until you've owned it for two years. Hmm. Or one, one year, I think. One year, actually. Right? Yeah. Kind of makes sense to me. It does. The, you know, the average, you know, the average institutional share, according to The Economist, The Economist has reported in the past that the average Fortune 500 institutional shareholder owns the stock for 278 days. Not even a year. Two hundred seventy. Wow. Okay, two hundred seventy-eight days. That's the average. Okay. Now that's mm-hmm. clearly influenced by computer trading and the like. But you know, you, you, you know, I I just don't believe that somebody can step in and own something for a short period of time, disengage in a capital markets view, and then opine on the long-term best interest of the company. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And putting in some different, saying you know, control or votes may have a different horizon than economic interest. Yeah, you get your economic interest the minute you buy in, but hmm? but a hmm. say might might you might have to prove that you're you care a little bit longer. Right? Okay, that that is a really cool initiative. Yeah. But it's but it's honestly I think it's one is one of there are lots of other things that could be done in in tools that could that could disadvantage short termism. Um, number three, uh, I think that the paradigm shift for business is recognizing the role of government and regulation and embracing it, purposed to create a level playing field and not an opportunity to find advantage. Government regulation. It, so here's my analogy. Think of a sports analogy. Okay. If you were, if you were, uh, you know, if we said in the NFL, put two teams on the field, say there's no rules, just play nice. See how that plays out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The NFL, the, the NFL provides rules to create a competitive level playing field for a purpose, right? Governments play a role in creating a level playing field, a competitive level playing field that ensures that we all play by the same rules in the same way and that we're not advantaged or disadvantaged by, you know, gaming the rules. Businesses don't, businesses don't embrace that today. They view government as, they view government as the enemy. Government deserves that in many cases because they don't often create rules that make sense. Right? (laughs) True. Yeah. But, so that's, you know, the advocacy would be for, you know, effective rule of making, not ineffective rule making, but, but businesses, you know, the, the, the ethos of, of, I think of commerce needs to embrace the role of regulation in pursuit of creating a level competitive playing field and, and specifically avoiding that race to the bottom, Right. For, you know, for example, take minimum wage, take something like a minimum wage, right? Let's say, let's take a micro example. There's a minimum wage in, in minimum wage in Toronto 
but not in Hamilton. What's what are you going to do? You can probably count on the fact that most businesses are probably going to move to Hamilton, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What's government's role? Let's have a let's create a let's create a level playing field so that there's a minimum wage for everybody, right? When when Kathleen Wynne put in a fifteen dollar minimum wage in Ontario, my issue was I said you know I got issues with that Kathleen. Why? Not because because I don't believe in fifteen dollar minimum wage. I'm happy fifteen dollars make it twenty. I'm happy. Just go stand at the border and tell all those people shipping products that are competing with me at Loblaws and Walmart and Sobeys and other places that are shipped in here from jurisdictions in the United States that pay seven. Tell me, tell me that you're creating a level playing field competitively. I'm good. I'm totally good. Right. So So more intergovernmental cooperation. Kathleen Wynne, by the way, was the premier of Ontario, the largest province in Canada. For those of you who are wondering. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You You think there are a few more, but I think the time you probably got a few more. We we could go on. I could spend an hour talking. Well, we'll link. We'll link. uh, We'll link to your speech. I read the speech to St. Mary's University. I think it was in uh, New Brunswick, so or Nova Scotia. So we'll link to that. And uh, any any final words for leaders? And I really appreciate your long term thinking. I appreciate the commitment. It's really a very interesting case study. What Maple Leaf Foods did under your leadership. You retired recently. announce your retirement recently, but, you know, moving to a more sustainable, ethical approach. And as somebody who does enjoy meat, but has a lot of vegan friends, I'm really grateful for companies that will take uh, a more thoughtful approach and uh, consider what we're doing to the planet and beyond. Had a really interesting conversation with Seth Godin about uh, the future of the planet recently on the podcast. So I appreciate that you in industry are thinking of similar things. Any final word, and then yeah. maybe where people can find you online or Maple Leaf Foods online, Michael. Just for listeners who want to know more. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a social media junkie, so I, I do have a Twitter account. So that's probably where you can uh, see anything that I'm doing or saying in the moment. Uh, so I have a. I don't. I can't even tell you what the. Uh, I can't even tell you what the uh, link. We'll find it. Is, so we'll find it. Maybe, yeah. maybe you can find that for me, Carrie, and put it in there. But I'm not. I'm not <laughs> a particular junkie. But we have a. We have a website. We have a company uh, Twitter account, and I have a personal one. So that that I sometimes opine on things from here to there. But look, all I'd say is uh, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, the time today. It's been a wonderful discussion on some very uh, substantial topics, and uh, any one of which we could probably spend another hour or two on uh, uh, in discussion. But uh, they, these are these are you know really really I think important things for the the future of um, of our society and. And obviously our country and our business at the same time. But uh, No, a lot of it is existential at this point, Michael. And I appreciate you leading the way on that. And I'm going to be thinking about the problem with short-term thinking for a long time. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Wonderful to see you. Great to see you too. I learned so much in that conversation, and I'm really thinking about the problems with short-term thinking. That can become such an issue for not only publicly traded companies, but for churches, privately held companies. It's like, I just got to have a better month. I got to have a better month. Uh, I think, and I love his vision for the future, for a sustainable future. I think there's something to long-term thinking. And 
the bottom line. So if you want more, we have got transcripts and show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 516. You'll find it all there absolutely free. And if you enjoyed this conversation, leave us a rating and review. Just do that on Apple Podcast, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you happen to listen. And we want to thank our partners for this. Thank you so much for Belay. Right now, if you act now, you can get $300 off the virtual assistant startup cost when you talk to Belay by August 31st, 2022. Just text Carry C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 to get started. And by Generis, you can access helpful resources and schedule your free coaching call with a generosity expert. Simply go to Generis.com, that's G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com slash carry. And well, you'll access all the resources and get a free coaching call while you're at it. So next episode, uh, my good friend, Jeff Henderson, this one came from the heart. He is an author and the founder of The Four Company for many years, a pastor, also worked at Chick-fil-A. And well, we talk about career indecision, how to know when it's time to leave. And it's a very personal, moving conversation. Here's an excerpt. I don't know if you remember this or not. I think you do, but you gave me so much great advice. But one of the best pieces of advice you gave me was, Jeff, you'll be surprised by how quickly you're forgotten. Don't be surprised. <laughs> and Thank you, Gordon McDonald, and, for giving me that advice. But yes, I do. I'm not a very nice friend, am I? <laughs> no, it's true, though. And that's actually helpful. It was helpful because it was it was not surprising to me. And we shouldn't be surprised because the organization needs to move on. The organization needs to move forward, right? I mean, that was so helpful for me to go, that's right, I'm going to be quickly forgotten. And that's actually a good thing because now, okay, wh- why? Then that, you have to ask the question, why does that bother me? Also coming up on the podcast, Stephen M. R. Covey, Nona Jones, Sint Marshall, Patrick Lencioni. Chris Anderson from TED Talks, Rory Vaden, and a lot more. I want to say thank you so much for listening and for sharing this episode. I want to tell you about something before we go that I just created for you and your team. So let me ask you something. (laughs) How are you finding leading change these days? Uh, I know a lot of leaders find it really difficult. In fact, you probably got a vision in your head of where you want to go, and you think, but... My church, my company, my organization, they're never going to buy in. It's just too bold a vision. Well, what if you're wrong about that? Maybe what you need is a strategy on how to lead change and implement it, and that's what I put together. So if you want a complete step-by-step framework for leading change and minimizing the opposition, minimizing or eliminating the pushback and the confusion that happens far too often when you're leading change, I've got a brand new course called The Art of Leading Change. It's your solution to make the right changes, figure out which ones you should make, which ones you shouldn't, and implement them successfully, even if you're worried that everybody's going to be against you. So if you enroll before August 31st, you will get the best pricing. And you can learn more about that by going to theartofleadingchange.com. When you go there, you're going to get an option. You can buy the course solo Or you can get the course for the same price and get the entire Art of Leadership Academy. I strongly recommend for you to choose the Academy option. We are having so much fun in there. Over a thousand leaders have joined so far in the last few months. It is a blast and you'll get all of my courses. But if you want the Art of Leading Change, go to theartofleadingchange.com. I suggest you pick the Academy option and I will see you inside the Academy. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Really appreciate you. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.